All righty. So, Joe, we got us, ourselves another book podcast. This one is uh, yours to spearhead. So today we have Icarus Fallen by Chantal Del Sol, French philosopher. We teased this on last week's live stream, but we did the live stream Thursday. Right? Thursday or was it yep. Wednesday? Uh, Wednesday, actually. Wednesday. Wednesday. Uh, which went great. And we talked about... Uh, we talked about cyberpunk again, but cyberpunk. this time with Jordan and kind of dystopian future societies and what the opposite of that might be, what aspirational goals we might aim towards instead of where all of our sci-fi at the moment seems to be aiming at, which is uh, all the negative things. How do things go sideways? <laughs> yeah, we, 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 as a, as a society at the moment, when we imagine the future, Everything that pops up is negative and that's a problem because it's, well, it, the, the problem is not in doing that. The problem is what it signifies, which is that we think things are going very badly and we struggle to believe that we can have a future that's going to be amazing or beautiful or worthwhile. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess the question for this podcast is why is it that we struggle to see a positive future? And beyond just, this is going to take a philosophical look. So it's beyond just that COVID just happened and that's a practical problem or our politics are in shambles. That's a practical problem. And that there's division in our society, which is again, a practical problem but what's the underlying reason for all of this chaos why what connects those things why are they all byproducts of something else what is that something and so on which is what Chantal del sol gets that in this philosophy book when was this written because i was as i was writing the description and stuff it's a translation if i if i remember it correctly. is let's see when it's a good question. Uh, la, 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 2003. Okay, so it's more modern than I anticipated. But they're obviously French, so that's why there was a translation. So, yeah, so she was ahead of the curve here um, by about 20 years. Huh. That's pretty impressive. Very. Um, so what you need to understand about this book, uh, here's a kind of a brief overlay, is that what the reason for the name Icarus Fallen is because it's a reference to the Greek myth of Icarus, right? Icarus is father Daedalus escape a castle using wax wings and they fly and his son, right? Icarus uh, is so enthused, so excited, uh, so overconfident that he flies higher and higher and higher then gets too close to the sun and his wax wings melt and he comes crashing to the ground and dies. Now, Del Sol imagines that we as a civilization are in a place where the same place that Icarus would have been had he survived the fall. So had he striven to great heights, uh, achieved amazing things, only to come crashing back down to earth and hitting rock bottom pretty hard, but surviving, right? What would that be like? What, what, 
is his mindset, what happened. How do you pick point. yourself up after a fall like that? <laughs> yeah, and, and this is something, uh, that's a nice analogy for where we are. So I'm actually not going to start with El Sol. I'm actually going to no. start with a, a piece of Nietzsche. So well, that, that's coming full circle because I think we started these live streams with a Nietzsche. Yeah, piece. It, <laughs> so go watch that one too if you haven't watched that one. <laughs> so some number of readers will know, have heard the idea that God is dead. Readers, listeners will know the idea that God is dead. Um, that came from Nietzsche. And this is actually the passage. I think it's from Thus Spake There's Zarathustra, which is kind of a it's crazy novel almost that Nietzsche wrote that's very mythical and strange. Um, oh, weird. Where this began. Yeah, less written like an analytic philosophy book and more like a kind of psychedelic trip or like a Wild. visual experience. <laughs> Um, in which he comes to the conclusion that the belief systems that we once relied on, so Christianity, uh, can't survive the rational inquiry and rational sort of dissection that modernism, the enlightenment and so on brought. And this is where this begins where this problem in our, our modern society begins is with the death of God, right? So it's not that God is dead. We don't believe in God. It wasn't some triumphant, uh, like, ha ha, we've killed God with our rationale. Right. It was, uh oh, some like, some like <laughs> atheist call to arms, right? Cause so like, just for context for me, for, I'm sure a lot of listeners had similar experiences. I think back probably around like high school or so is when I first heard that quote. And I heard it like in context with like an atheist kind of manifesto of the world. But then like, I think it, re it was probably as I entered college that I heard the actual full quote of that, which is God is dead and we have killed him. And I was like, well, that's really fucking bad to like miss. Like, I feel like that second half of that quote is really important. <laughs> like yeah. it really changes the context of what he was saying when you actually put the full sentence there. Yeah. And, and I, I heard it the same way. So first, so there's an evangelical film that came out, I don't know how long ago. That 10, makes more sense now. Ago, that came out that was called God is Not Dead. <laughs> and I never watched this. It looked like a, it's like all evangelical films. They're horrible and they're propaganda right. and it's boring. They're like borderline uh, conspiracy theory films. <laughs> just laying in it and the idea that so it takes, and the evangelical community tends to take the idea that God is dead as the assertion that um, God has been disproven and that there's no reason to believe in God anymore or that the Western world no longer believes in God anymore uh, and that that's somehow a good thing or whatever. So they react to it defensively and they say, I still believe in God, therefore God is not dead. But that doesn't even, and so they're having this triumphant declaration of faith, either through right. that film as propaganda or themselves in defiance of this idea. They're misconstrual of what Nietzsche was talking about. But when you realize that what Nietzsche is taught, what Nietzsche is actually talking about, it's stupid. It is stupid to react 
in that way to make a movie God is not dead because it's like you're so misunderstanding the philosophy that if you understood it properly, that would under no circumstances be your response. You're not dealing with the issue. In fact, your belief in this evangelical, especially fundamentalist evangelical God, they kind of sees God as this weird, like man in the sky, this object. In reality, it, it's a strained worldview. Um, that just saying that you believe in that doesn't mean that your God can survive the rational onslaught that's already come, right? In some sense, you've held out long past your time <laughs> and whatever I found that many evangelical beliefs are predicated on ignorance that they just don't, the arguments and counter arguments that come up are just do not understand the situation that they're in. They just don't get it. And even the apologists like William Lane Craig and these people who make rational arguments for the existence of God are playing silly games where they'll say things like, now I don't know if William Lane Craig did this, but I've heard this before. So. I'm not attributing it to him, just some apologist would say things like the world is 6,000 years old and scientists can't tell us otherwise because radiocarbon dating only spans like a thousand to 2000 years. So they couldn't really tell us that it's that old, that it's billions of years old. But and they'll make this to their, this <laughs> argument to their congregations, presumably to strengthen the faith of their congregation. But that is a lie. Not in that radiocarbon dating doesn't have some window of time in which it operates, but that there are other isotopes that you can use that have different windows of operation. And so you, they go back billions of years. And so you can look at, oh, this one decays over, you know, takes a billion or so. This covers the two billion year old window to one right. billion years old. <laughs> and this one covers this and this one. And they all overlap. And you can use all these different isotopes to get a, a full picture of the age of some fossil that you found. And, and the idea that because radiocarbon dating has a small window that it operates in, um, means that the earth is in fact 6,000 years old. And you can believe that if you're a Christian is asinine, but, and it's so asinine that it suggests that the apologists are either staggeringly ignorant about the science or aware and actively lying to their congregations in order to boost their faith or something. Okay, so this is this is either a malicious level of um, deceit, ostensibly for the protecting of their souls, um, of, of protecting them against truth, mind you. And if God is a form, God is truth, right? God is the true path or whatever. Um, well, then this makes, then you've already made, you've just tripped an incoherence. And that is a contradiction to say that God uh, reveals to us the truth or has the truth or determines the truth. And then when we discover the truth, somehow that's against God. But you have to lie to provide an alternate, alternate truth from the one that the science has come up with. And apparently you're on God's side. So you're the liar, but apparently you're on God's side here. So that's malicious or just frighteningly ignorant.
Um, but this is, this is the way that that world tends to view Nietzsche and tends to misunderstand the entire, um, idea that God is dead. And, uh, so that's worth noting so that we can address that right now, right here, that the, what Nietzsche is talking about when he says God is dead is not, um, the idea that God never existed. He's not even making a metaphysical claim there. He's making a claim about the fact that, um, that the way in which we were, con our, our belief systems construed the world and the way in which we thought that they were construing the world and our understanding of them doesn't square with the science and the rationality of the philosophies. Okay. So here's this portion. I'm going to read Nietzsche now and we can hear this straight from the horse's mouth. Have you not heard of that madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God, I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God were standing around just then, he provoked much laughter. Has he got lost? Asked one. Did he lose his way like a child? Asked another. Or is he hiding? Is he afraid of us? Has he gone on a voyage, emigrated? Thus they yelled and laughed. The madman jumped into their midst and pierced them with his eyes. Where is God? He cried. I will tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we enchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns? Are we not plunging continually, backward, sideward, forward, in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as those, as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breath of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? Do we not need to light lanterns in the morning? Do we hear nothing as yet of the noise of the grave diggers who are burying God? Do we smell nothing as yet of the divine decomposition? Gods too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. Right. Well, I know I get, I get why you started there. Um, <laughs> I mean, the, the first thought that, that popped in my brain, which is very contemporary, but it almost makes it makes even more sense why we're turning to things like a multiverse or a you know plurality of of ways of being as a way to figure out what direction we're going right that's he said we've unchained ourselves from our sun you know yeah. and it, in my sense it's like well the sun is the is the anchor point for which we you know the sun rises and sets in the east or whatever you know it's like it gives you that natural cadence of of life right and if you pull that pin you drift into any direction you so choose right and i like or the not idea even you that, choose <laughs> i like when he talks about the are we going up or down or backwards right. what that <laughs> like what do where, where is up in space you know you're floating in the vacuum it's like There's, where what is this reference we're talking about it's yeah. like god and the christian morality had been for Europe and for so long, the 
in fact, all of human history has one God or another. It's yep. suggesting what's higher, what's the highest ideal of virtues and these things. And it provided for people an orientation, a sense of where we should be going, where not to go, how to move, right? It was a compass for life and all this. But yeah. now it's nihilist. The higher, the higher order to aim for. And when that's gone, one's asked, left to wonder, uh, where do you go? <laughs> what do you do? And so nihilism is immediately, and not just nihilism in that you believe that there's nothing, there's no meaning to live for exactly, but it isn't clear. Um, that it's in the emptiness and the emptiness of everything that there's yeah. that everything in some sense. Um, has no ultimate meaning. And so there's kind of no point to do anything that, that turning left is equally as good or bad as turning right. There's no reference. There's, or you can move up, you can move down. <laughs> right. These things mean nothing anymore. It's all disoriented. Okay. So now we're going to go to Del Sol and that's kind of a good primer because you get a sense of where she's beginning. So we're going to talk about a small part in the book. It's actually chapter 10. And she's talking about the rejection of worldviews. So one short quote. Historically, most governments have maintained a conception of social happiness they have inherited from religion or more generally from culture. Okay. So the idea there is that... Uh, we're talking more about politics in a way that Nietzsche didn't heard, didn't what we read, right? Um, and that here it's actually, we're going to talk about what's going on with the political world and that our governments don't actually know what to aim at because in the same way that we're all disoriented from the loss of God, governments themselves are disoriented and that the people in them don't really know what to do. And they used to look at ideals, uh, the ideals that would draw them forward were religious ideals. And without a common religion here to guide us, then like, that's it. We don't know where to move, right? So even the idea of a good life, well, good, define good without being religious. <laughs> like, so this is a strange problem. And none of what we're actually going to talk about here, um, we should just say, is a statement about whether or not God exists that beyond this, beyond the point. It's yeah, a question say, it, doesn't, about, it doesn't feel like that's what even Nietzsche was getting at. He was just using God as a kind of a shorthand as the closest metaphor. Well, he's right about. to use God even in a more literal sense in that he's talking about the, the death of religion and he's talking right. about the role. But we're not talking here about whether or not God does or does not exist. We're talking about the consequences of a culture of losing the belief in the God. Yeah. And what that results in. So it's more you could all lose your belief <laughs> hypothetically in God and God can still exist. Right. Yeah. Or not. Or you could have belief in God and God doesn't exist. It doesn't really matter. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God is dead. Right. Our religious systems have failed and they don't withstand the rational inquiry and criticism that's happened over the last hundred years. They just didn't actually like really 500 years, even longer, but that has, um, undermined them. Western culture in general has lost its sense and a belief 
specifically in Christianity. So I know there's some polls that show that there's been an increased belief in spirits and superstition and UFOs and stuff at the same time. Yeah. It's uh, um, spiritual, but non-religious is the category. Right. Because you can't actually kill the impulse for God. <laughs> you evolve to one. So you'll see a um, new religion probably. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even that we evolved to believe in God. I don't think, I think it's more like. It's very, it's a very strange problem. It's more like there, oh man, God is, and we evolved around it. <laughs> but what I, that gives you like spooky territory. <laughs> yeah. It's very weird. It, and it depends. On, and I don't, that's a rabbit hole because even what I mean by God in that is a complicated thing. Um, the tangent for another podcast. Yeah. We're going to leave that one alone. <laughs> But anyway, so, uh, God is dead. Uh, we didn't annihilate the desire for God cause that's an evolved thing. Um, so you get superstitions, even though people have dropped formal religion entirely, the consequence of dropping these formal religions are as follows. Um, as Del Sol just noted, governments don't have a sense of what a good life is, right? She carries on. Uh, modern pluralistic democracy inaugurates a new way of looking at things. It presupposes that happiness is subject to controversy, is always defined by a particular belief system, and that it is based on a subjective value system. It postulates that there is no objective conception of social happiness, and that, and that because of this, no government can legitimately adopt a particular conception of the good in the sense that tax, education, or immigration policy reflects a particular way of understanding collective or individual happiness. Okay, so the common path, the common aim, the value that was given to us by religion is gone. What that thing was good, whatever that value was, was good. Governments don't have an, a single good anymore. In their de democratic systems, Instead, emerge a bunch of different goods, none of which are objective in the way that we thought about God being an objective fact outside of, which is a mind independent, that it's not dependent on me believing in him to exist. Um, so there's no good in an objective sense. It's just all subjective goods. Um, and they're all going to debate endlessly about which one gets to be in power at any given time. Yep. Right. So it's all blurred. And so there's no. There's not a good tax or education or immigration policy. It's just a bunch of opinions about what is a good education policy without any objective reference to compare it to. So that is where, that's part of where we're at. And you can see that everywhere. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. It's like every time we get in these debates, people, if you try to say that there's something objectively good, in fact, just the idea of objective truth right now is out of vogue. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember there was a, this is actually one of the Ted talks where I, I've kind of stopped listening to the, they used to do Ted radio hours, um, which are basically like podcasts around a theme and they would take different interviews from different people around certain themes. And they basically did the objectivism versus subjectivism. But then they ended the podcast kind of positing that subjectivism was the right way to look at the world. And I was like, you're not supposed to do that. Right. Like you're supposed to be, 
Right. Like you're, you're supposed to be advocating for the ideas, not for what is the right idea. Because like you said, it goes out of vogue. Like everything, like everything ebbs and flows with time, but it's like, I also don't think that like there are objective things, you know, like we can't deny that. Yeah. Well, people will. They'll <laughs> deny that. That they they'll even even the idea that there could that anything is not a social construct is out of favor. That people will say things like, What do you mean? They'll say your truth. Right. Yeah, this is that's very, very common. Thing. Like that's nails this right on the head. Like people won't say the truth. They'll say, you know, follow your truth or whatever. Preach your what truth. You and it's not that people <laughs> don't have experiences, right? Because the, the steel man version of that would be that every person is presumably conscious and they have a conscious experience that I don't have direct access to and never will. And so I can't exactly tell them what their experience was. And so they get to say what their truth is, is whatever it is they happen to be experiencing. The thing that people do, though, is not say that. <laughs> that what they say, what they, they take that and then they say, because you don't have access to my conscious experience, my lived experience, um, then you can't tell me that my interpretation of my lived experience is invalid. Right. But the obvious reason why that's wrong is narcissists. Narcissists believe they are better than everyone. They actually, they believe that. They have an inflated ego. They think they're amazing, that they can do no wrong and all this, right? That's their model of their experience. And they even experience that to some degree. Does that make it true? Does yeah. that mean they really are better than all these people? In 99% of situations that the narcissist puts other people in, <laughs> no. <laughs> Does that mean they can do no wrong in the way they seem to think that they can do no wrong? No, they're deluded. Yeah. <laughs> They are deluded. And that is an obvious case against this idea of pure oh. subjectivity. And just thinking about this right now, wouldn't that make therapy impossible? Like the, the whole idea of having someone be a therapist, being able to help you sort through your problems? Because wouldn't that therapist need to live with you 24-7 to be able to have yeah, they, any sort of insight? They can't even do that because they still wouldn't have access to your direct experience. Okay. And, and because they're saying that because I only have direct access to my experience, no one else does. And my model of my direct experience is somehow inherently valid as a result of that. There's actually no reason to, for the therapist to do anything other than give you exactly what you want. And so you have the APA <laughs> suggesting these, the APA suggesting um, affirmative uh, treatment, affirmative care for transgendered individuals. Hmm. And a, the idea that a therapist is there to affirm or deny anything is it's malpractice, but you, the idea that a therapist might suggest something or say, let's hold up. Like you're making this, you are self-diagnosing. Let's hold off on that until we figure out something in the future doesn't make sense because once I have a model of me being transgendered and I tell somebody that they have no means by which to argue that I'm not. 
It's all the subjectivity thing. Once I believe right. that I am, then I am as far as these people are concerned. But again, this is the narcissism problem. Once I'm a narcissist and I believe that I'm better than anyone, well, then I just am, right? So you, unless you want, if you want to grant the idea that the APA and the therapist should be doing affirmative therapy or affirmative, affirmative treatment and taking the, the self-diagnoses of their patients seriously, then you have to agree with the idea that narcissists are actually better than you. Weird. So it, the thought that comes up to is, does that mean, I don't know if there's any studies on this, but has there been like a, a rise in um, narcissistic behavior <laughs> since the 20th century? Because that was the one thing that comes to mind. But the other part is like, it seems like we've taken this like, um, the hyper individualistic uh, culture that America was kind of founded on or like grew into and just kind of turned this thing a little too far. Like we've ratcheted up that intensity just yeah. a little too much. I don't know about research about an increase in narcissism. I have no idea. I mean, the, the internet seems to suggest that everyone's a narcissist now. <laughs> but the internet that, never lies, right? But I don't know. Maybe I'm just curious more than anything right. else. There certainly is a feeling that we've gone too far the individualism front. This idea that it's become so individualistic that it's become solipsistic and narcissistic and so on. So I kind of yeah. get like the sentiment. I'm just not sure about any research. So I just did a quick little research on NIH library. Oh, this is East and West Germany in 2018. But it says narcissism in the modern Western societies. And this has been referred to as a narcissism epidemic. The endorsement rate of the statement, I am more important. I am an important person has increased from 12% in 1963 to 77 to 80% in 1992 adolescence in adolescence. Well, that's nice. So that's a huge increase <laughs> in like. 20 years. Yeah. Well, some of it could be better diagnostic tools. Right. Yeah. How good were the studies back then in no. the 60s? What was the age group? It said adolescence. It doesn't say age group. No. Teens are kind of narcissistic anyway. Right. right. <laughs> so they analyzed narcissistic language, such as me more frequently than we and us, such as I am the greatest. Uh, more self-focused song lyrics, stronger orientation toward frame and TV shows, stuff like that. Hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. Some of the language stuff could be depression, mm. not narcissism. So there's like um, poets that committed suicide used I, the word I, like self-referential language more often than those that did not. Um, and that there's some suggestion that would people get depressed, they become very focused on themselves. Interesting. That, not to say that they're like, that they are narcissistic or selfish exactly. It might just be that um, as they become depressed, that problem becomes, they become more aware of the fact that they have a problem. And so they start to talk more about, hey, I'm hurting. I need help. Like I've died. Like I've located the nexus of, of pain and it's ah, in okay. me. Let me talk about it. You know, so it's not, necessarily self-focused though 
I know that one of the ways that people tend to improve their life quality is to serve other people. So to put your attention in others. Yeah. Um, it's a complicated thing, but that's all to say that it might not necessarily be a rise in narcissism. Uh, it may be a rise in depression or a mix of both in some varying capacity. Okay. So with all that being said, we talked about the death of God so far, loss of value systems, loss of the idea of good as an objective good. So we have subjective goods that in a democracy are doing nothing but being argued about. And that whoever happens to win the day is the one who gets to define the good for the day. Delsol continues, through experience, we know that these global visions have often turned out to be oppressive, whether they belong to a power-wielding religion or a governing ideology. So we've seen how in the 20th century, not only did God die, in response to that, we thought that we could create heaven on earth of our own accord, that we could do it. That look at all the, it was like, there's an optimism in modernism. It was like, we can go to the moon. We can build the Panama Canal. We can create these cities that have never been made before. Look at these amazing things. Look, we, the whole world is our oyster. We can manipulate reality in any way that we want. We'll build heaven on earth. Watch us. And the mechanisms that we produced and the ideologies that we produced to replace God very quickly devolved into Auschwitz and the Gulag Archipelago. And so we became not only cautious or paranoid about <laughs> yeah. religion and theocracy and these things, perhaps rightfully, but also ideology itself. That communism is a path to death. Fascism is a path to death. Religion is a path to death. Can yeah. we do anything that doesn't re result in some horrible tragedy? Oh, look how amazing America is. But they had slaves. Like everything, all society and civilization seems to be just one more. Any step you take, any direction you look in, any star on the horizon you want to use as a guideline is suddenly he subject to this terror. Yeah. And no one really knows where to turn. So there's that part. Very interesting okay, so, idea. So the interest, the part that's really cool, cool. That's interesting about that too. She makes it, she talks about how, um, she defines values as aspirational. Hmm. So the idea is that the goals that we're aiming at are that our values are not so concrete that a very concrete goal is pick up a glass of water, go to the grocery store or whatever, but values are aspirational goals. They're things like justice and that you don't actually achieve them. You never get there. Like I go to the store and I need to buy milk. I grab that off the shelf and I bring it home in the end. Done. Right. Yeah. And she needed it. Goal Mission accomplished. <laughs> but in pursuit of justice, you, the horizon recedes. It continues to move forward. You continue to go after, you continue, and you never actually get there. Um, but they're aspirational. You're not in some sense meant 
to get there. You're meant to get further. That's what you're meant to do. Just get further than where you are now. But when we lost our values, we lost that aspirational understanding. And we now don't really know not just where to aim, but what's worth aiming at. We're scared of what to aim at. Right. Everything is a, is a horror show. It's you are kind of just like, eh, 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 right, right away. It's almost like you're paralyzed to what direction to turn or like, even with like, that's why I think the God, the uses of God in the language that you quoted from is so important because it's, it simplifies the, how many variables, too many to comprehend that you can take directions in your life. It's another thing. It's like, at least for me, what makes a lot of sense in this. And I hate to do it, but I feel like we bring it up in almost every podcast, but like working out is kind of like this microcosm of what it means to aspire towards something. Cause early on you can like get obsessed with a certain like kind of physique or a certain goal, like, you know, running a mile or lifting a certain weight, whatever. But very quickly, once you hit a certain thing, you realize that if you really want to keep progressing, you're going to have to keep updating that short-term goal so that you just, or, or at some point just continue to maintain because you can't, like, you're going to just naturally plateau or just don't have, you're not a professional athlete. So you just have to keep it reasonable with what time you can put into these things. Right. Um, and so that's like a, like a smaller example of like how to think about this that I think what I've noticed, at least for myself, is is if you can realize that everything is a work in progress all the time, it kind of takes some of the pressure off of you to, like, perform in the moment or, like, be perfect in the moment, I guess. Hmm. Yeah. Or and that it, stagnation or, or paralysis, I guess, of not doing anything, right? But it also gets you, like, it's not just, like, it. it, it saves you from the paralysis. But it also lets you understand that, like, you don't have to be perfect. Yeah. Like, you're meant to progress slowly. You're meant to get as far as you can, and you're never going to achieve the perfect thing. Yeah. Perfection is like the idea of grasping something finally, that you finally have this goal. But aspirations aren't concrete. Yeah. Right? Not meant to be. It almost feels like life in some sense, and it sounds weird, but it's like, you're creating a living masterpiece, but you're not done until you take your last, last breath. Hmm. That's, and that's the most poetic way I can kind of put what it feels like living without like some religious framework or something like that. Like every day you just live as best as you see fit. And you, and then you do that until you know, it's over and it sounds weird, but it's, that's kind of what it is. Like there's like, the, it's not like wait until the end and you, you know, at least for me, it's like you, you, until the very end or the, you know, when you have those moments where you reflect and you're like, well, I'm glad I have all these people that I care about in my life. Right. Like that's, I feel like that's the more, more tangible thing. It's not about like the money or the wealth or the things you accrue. It's the people that you're, you brush up against that make it worth it because it's like in those moments it's not the it's not the simple mathematics that like our society as a modern thing likes to do with math where it's like one plus one equals two or or you know multiplication it's it's in those moments where it's 
somehow one plus one equals four, right? Like when you meet certain people in your life and you just get it. Hmm. There's like that, there's like a hidden algorithm in those things that you can't explain, right? And we've kind of lost those things. There's something about, in what I'm hearing you say, it's about, it's not, like if I go to a party and I have a bunch of expectations of where the party is or what the party is going to be like and how the perfect night is going to look and, oh man, I'm so excited this person's going to be there. We're going to talk just like this. Everything's going to go according to this plan uh, that ruins the night. Yeah. Then you go in there with these expectations and either you're disappointed but often you're disappointed, not because it didn't live up to your expectations, but because you tried to impose those expectations on the evening and then guaranteeing that they wouldn't exceed yeah. your expectations. <laughs> you weren't present. You were trapped in your model that you wanted to have happen. Yeah. Right. And there's something about being with good friends and with good people that if you can let go of this grabbing onto your objective thing, just let it go and understand that the point is not perfection. The point is to appreciate the moment, <laughs> to enjoy the moment, yeah. to be there with other people. And in that way, when you can accomplish that, when you can learn to let go, then you can find that the world had more in store for you than you could imagine. Yeah. That, you, that your expectations were small in comparison to what the world wanted for you in that moment. Yeah. To quote Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. But you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> I love chocolate, so. <laughs> I mean, it, you're totally right. Like, it, and that's one thing I've noticed. It's like the, the, least, the least you expect of others, the better the outcome in most situations. But the other thing is to have high expectations of yourself because those are the things you can control. Because if you go into the situations where you can actually affect the outcome and you're prepared and you've done all your homework or whatever you need to do to execute on those things, nine times out of 10, you will succeed, whatever that means. Yeah. If you can push yourself, if you can take yourself farther, if you can understand. Yeah. You, you, you need kind of a vision. You need a long vision, which is, of course, something that she gets into, lacking. I assume. Or, oh. That we're lacking, that Del Sol's saying we're lacking. Uh, Accurate. Yeah. I figured okay. she would pull that in. So, I'm going to move on. Go ahead. So, I think this whole page is probably worth going at. There's this idea that, and this is kind of the real interesting part here when it comes to politics, it's that because there's no good, there's actually no good politics in any objective sense. It's all random and subjective. So what you have instead is that because people are looking for something ob objective, something hard, like a hard foundation that they can stand on, something that they can rely on to be in place of a good when we can't buy into any values, they start to look at this, they add science as if it's an inflexible, secure thing. And they turn away from politicians and instead to something like, they're like task creators. They're pe or not ta task accomplishers, 
they're gophers. They get you the coffee, they bring you the science. And they're just like, here you go. This is the, this is the perfect solution to this problem. We did the science, take the science and whatever. It sounds like shake the crystal ball or like the, the magic eight ball. That's what I'm thinking of. And it's like science says, and then it's like, here's exactly what you wanted to see. Right. <laughs> of course, both parties now will say that they're, that they're, uh, this party of science. Right. Right. And you, so you hear this kind of language everywhere and Fauci. Uh, of course, they offloaded a ton of the responsibility of dealing with that pandemic onto Fauci as if, as if he was science, which is what he claimed for one. On multiple occasions, he said that criticizing, and he talked in the third person. It was so ridiculous. It's like, did you, like Shakespeare had Julius Caesar talk in the third person to make him sound like an asshole. Okay. <laughs> Really, to make him sound arrogant and, and gaudy. So and of note course, yourself, don't Fauci, ever talk in third person. <laughs> yeah. And so Fauci literally said, criticizing Dr. Fauci really is criticizing science, which is bullshit. That <laughs> is bullshit. If you think that you are not a scientist, science is not a stable thing. It is constantly in debate within itself. And it is evolving and will slowly but surely approximate truths, but it, science itself is aspirational and not a clear goal. But they'll offload the responsibility of statesmanship, which would be taking the facts that even science provides you and the facts on the ground and have employing wisdom, seeing how they serve the values that we hold as a society, mm -hmm. but the statesman is dead. The, the statesman is a, some, a politician who governs with these values in mind, but when there are no values, there can be no statesman. And instead there are scientists who take on the responsibility of a, that should be a statement in governing and directing and moving the ship in the right direction. Right. And so she calls this like a technocracy that everything's just a technical problem. It's, oh, we just off, we offload the responsibilities of statesmanship onto all of these people who, instead of aiming at goals, they're just fixers of little problems. They run around, they fix all these little problems. They don't actually aim at anything. They just put fires out everywhere. They're not moving us in the right direction. They're not moving at all. They're just putting out the little fires and that's it. Ooh, Which is me when I read this, I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally what we're doing. It's, dude, you know what's scary about this? So I've been listening to a ton of hardcore history, which is probably a surprise to nobody, but back probably like a couple months ago. I listened to like the downfall of the Roman empire. And this is basically, I mean, this downfall of Roman empire, I say that as if it happened like over a weekend, it really didn't. It happened over like a hundred years, but basically this is what happens. It's like you, you basically start out with strong rulers for most civilizations who, who understand the civilization they created and the great experiment of the civilization and things are great. And there's a golden age after a certain period of time. But then after a while, the golden age ends and then you start getting rulers who don't remember or understand 
the underlying statesmanship or the philosophy of what they actually created. And you can actually see this in, in, in contemporary times, in modern times, where you have people who start a company and the people who start that company really get it and really know how to shepherd it into a golden era of growth and innovation. But then after a period of time, someone joins that company who takes over. And then after multiple leaders who don't understand anymore, they're just kind of running it in steady state. And after some steady state, once an actual struggle happens, that company begins to collapse and corrode. And I think states go through the same period of expansion and contraction. Um, and it's, I think it's <laughs> very apparent where we're, we're kind of heading towards if we don't get our heads out of our asses to put it <laughs> not so lightly. <laughs> right. We did, um, a live stream on, on the book, Immoderate Greatness about how civilizations collapse. And it's the same, they said the same thing in that book. It's just, there's a period of people who create the state and they put in the work and they're some hard people and they make it happen. Or they have a philosophy, they understand why it's necessary because they saw the world before that state was there. And they're like, whoa, maybe not that. Let's have a state. Yeah. And, <laughs> and all that work and there's a generation that respects this and understands it and so on. As time goes on, you get more and more removed generation from generation from that initial understanding and it gets watered down and watered down. And then everything starts to dissolve. Yeah. And that's something like what we have playing now. <laughs> and, and that's evident in this, in our politics. It's like we struggle. Our politicians don't talk about values. They give it, it's pablum. And even the idea of talking about values feels like antiquated. It feels antiquated. And so like if, or they would come up and it would, the only person who would talk about values would be an evangelical Christian talking about traditional values in Idaho to get elected. And it's not even clear that that person actually gives a flying fuck about values. They, they care about getting elected and they're speaking what they think the population wants to hear. So it's propaganda. You know, it's just political conniving and BS. So it's like, like when you hear it, it seems as if it's either totally antiquated and makes no sense or that it's just a political ploy, uh, riling up the base. Yeah. I mean, even right now, like we just went through our midterm elections and it's like, it feels like the most important thing isn't like the actual issues. It's just who has more seats in respective places in our government, which is like, what? Like, like all, like, it seems like it's going to be so even that it's just going to be one, both sides are just going to stonewall each other from doing anything of value. Like, like no side wants to talk to each other. And it's like, what is like, have they forgotten why they exist? <laughs> it's not about like winning one side or the other. They're part of the same country. At least that's the way I see it. <laughs> but there, it's not, there's no unifying thing. There's right. no, a value is a, is a unifying aspirational goal. It gets yeah. us all pointing in the same direction, moving in the same direction at a thing that we may never grasp, but in pursuing it, we get further down the road than we would have otherwise. Yeah. 
But when that's gone, when that's just poop, that's just gone, everybody's all scattered to the winds and they all, nobody can even talk about where we should, what direction we should be moving in. They start speak. It's like Tower of Babel. They all start speak. It all comes crashing down and then everybody starts speaking <laughs> a different language. Right. And that's what the left and the right, they speak a different language. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, that is, a, I hadn't considered it that way, but man, you're totally spot on with that one. That's what the story of the Tower of Babel is about. The collapse of a civilization. That what happens is that the structure that they had built crashes down, right? That they, had, that, that whole story is a story about a bunch of people getting together and they decide that they're going to make a tower to reach heaven, right? So they're aiming up at something. They're trying to do that, but they're kind of hubristic like Icarus, right? Yeah. And they get to fly and then the whole thing comes crashing down. And what happens when the whole thing crashes down? Everybody starts speaking a different language. And mythologically, you're, or if you just read that, like literal, you're like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is some crazy shit. It was just designed to explain why everybody, why there are different languages in the world, which it is in part, but it's also, a, if you look at it mythologically and symbolically, it's trying to tell you that when a civilization is collapsing, nobody can hear each other. <laughs> yeah. They everyone are talks speaking past a different language. <laughs> and that's because the reason they're speaking a different language is because I have, I'm reasserting the new value to replace the one that we just lost and you're reasserting a different one. And so I'm orienting in one direction, you're orienting in another direction. And all of my language and thinking and everything is organized around how to move that way. And then you're trying to, in all your organization, trying to move that way. And when I start talking about, I'll even use the same word that you're using, but I'm using in reference to something that's within my framework ordered underneath a different goal. And you'll use the same word in your framework oriented against a different goal. And so we won't even use the same word in the same way. <laughs> and we will talk right past each other all of the time. Yeah. And then I'll criticize you on my terms. So you'll say that same word that I just used, and I don't understand that you're using it in a different way, but I'll use the word then. I'll say that, oh, you're such an idiot. You said that that word means this. Ha ha, you're so stupid or something. Or why would you think that this would uh, result in this? That's so dumb. But I don't even understand that you're not playing the same game, that you don't mean it the way I mean it. And that's just all that the left and the right does. They just, yeah, yeah, I mean, they just talk fast each other. They don't understand that they're speaking a different language. They don't understand that they have different values and different goals. And they criticize each other on their own terms without ever understanding what the other person is even saying. They don't know what the other person's fucking saying. Man, it's, it's so nuts, right? Because when you say you're talking different languages, most people assume like actual literal languages, right? But. It doesn't need to be that. It, it's just like, <laughs> it's just a dialect change or, or a few select words that carry outsized weight within conversation. And right. then all here's, the here's an example. Um, in the South, if somebody says, bless your heart. Mm -hmm. Okay. That means a very different thing in the South than it means in the North. In the North, it's a nice thing. You don't hear it very often, but somebody would be like, bless your heart. Like that's a, it's kind of maybe a little quaint, but like. It's nice in some sense. Yeah. In out, it's an insult. It's you're an idiot. <laughs> oh, yeah. you're just stupid. You're just a little special. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so you can see how people could have misconstruals talking yeah. past each other on that thing, right? If a northerner says to a southerner in the way that the northerner means it, bless your heart, and the southerner starts getting angry, then the northerner's confused and the southerner doesn't understand, is freaked out, and the southerner doesn't understand that they misconstrued this whole thing. Right. It's like a sitcom. They're talking past each other. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the same. It's, it's how different dialects actually evolve is that you isolate groups of people who came from the same language background for long enough and things in their values change a little bit as they're to compensate for their differences in environment. And then they stay different and they just drift. The language just drifts and drifts and it turns from the same language to a kind of different dialect of the same language to suddenly I can't understand that Scotsman. I didn't understand a word that came out of his mouth, but apparently he's speaking English until it's an entirely different language. Yeah. And they just whoop, drift apart. Yeah. It's just a divergent. And that's what we're doing. <laughs> we're becoming different nations. The only thing that's weird about it though, is before the limitation was geography, right? Like once you separated people, from a geographic sense, then it would do that. But now we've added this new thing called the internet and it's like ramping up with this rate of change or I don't even know what to call it, iteration within subcultures. And now it's, you know, you're, you're seeing it. And we kind of talked about, we were, before we hit record, we were talking about Twitter. Um, and I remember having like this thought about like, like the analogy of like why certain things change at certain yeah. rates or why there's like these like enclaves of things. And it's kind of like basically a chemistry problem where if you imagine a, a molecule inside of an enclosure, right? Like if you have a big room and you only have a certain, like a small number of molecules of gas walk, like floating around, there's not going to be a lot of interaction between those things, right? And so my analogy started with like cities versus like urban versus rural, right? So in rural places, the rate of change is slower because there's just less people, less density. So there's less chances for people to interact and cause tensions that need to be worked out. So then there's less progress in, in those domains, right? But then you go to a city and all of a sudden that rate of change gets ramped way the hell up because you just the random chance of you bumping into someone and there being issues that need to get worked out or a system needs to be created to be sure there's no, you know, you flatten these things out, make sure everything's hunky-dory, that you just take that container and shrink it way down. And so you're seeing that played out now with the internet where you're taking the geographical space between the rural people and the urban people and you're putting them right next to each other and you're saying, you have to like each other and figure each other out. <laughs> I think it, it's, it's, not just that now we have an insane amount of access to each other. We also are free from the limiting aspect of our geography. Yeah. That if I, if I live in a certain area and that certain area has people around me that don't necessarily agree with me, well, I, what am I going to do? Go find some things just like me? No, because I'm, can, I can't move. I'm stuck in the small town, whenever it happens to be, we have to work out our differences. We have to talk. Yeah. And then it limits us. We act as regulators for each other. Because if you're liberal and I'm conservative, but neither, but we're going to have to see each other every day and we might talk politics. Well, either you learn just, you know, it's fine. We don't have to talk politics or religion or money or whatever. The You'll other talk sports instead. 
Right. We find something <laughs> else. Or you talk, you learn how to talk in such a way that you can continue to have that kind of a conversation over a long period of time. That means you have to be respectful right, and listen and care and understand that I'm going to meet this person again. I would like for us to be on good terms going forward, right? But, and so that allows us to limit. So I might realize that my crazy beliefs, having been exposed to your beliefs, yeah. um, are actually not, no one's, you're acting as a regulator for me. I don't go off and spin into crazy town because you get to be like, whoa, hold up a second here. There are, you know, the, the moon is not, you know, flat or, <laughs> or the earth is not flat. There's, like, let's dial it down a second. But the moment on the you, dark side of the moon, what? Right. The moment you annihilate geography. Yeah. Right. You abstract everybody out of it. Then a bunch of things happen. One, I can go to a digital geography where there are no people left to regulate me. It's I'm only surrounded by people who think exactly like I think. And there's a dual problem in that they don't regulate me from going into crazy town, but they also encourage me to go in the same direction that they're going. And we escalate each other. There's positive reinforcement happening. So it's simultaneously, no one's holding you back and you're being encouraged to go farther hmm. the moment you get there. And then the other thing, it, I don't, it, it's, there's more to it than that, but it's, we'll leave it at that. That's one yeah. big. I mean, the destruction of the local community. I mean, that make I didn't even consider that initially, but that makes total sense, right? Because even still, like, say you say it's a family that's across the street from you or whatever, right? Just just for sake of example, even if you don't really want to like like bridge that gap for whatever reason, right? Like that person just annoys you or rubs you the wrong way. But for instance, what if your friend or significant other whoever it might be is friends with like someone re related to that person and you're still going to be around that person uh, even if you don't choose to be around that person right it is in your best interest to just figure it out because you're still going to have proximity to this person and it's better to be civil because you don't want to look like an ass in front of people that are important to you and the same is true vice versa, right? Like say you, you break this down another level, like it's like a school function for children or something, right? Like you still want to be civil just for the sake of the children so that you can just go to, you know, some softball game or whatever it is, some function so that your children have a stable community, right? Like, yeah. but because of the way that the modern world works is that like sense of community has all but evaporated unless you go and seek it out for yourself in specialized formats. I mean, religion was the big one when I was little, but like, I don't, that's not- We talked about the problem then. I, I know, right? Like, <laughs> I was gonna say, when I was little, it was religion, but like even like school stuff, it really didn't kind of do it very much. I, I think nowadays my, my thinking in this scenario would be signing up for like a specialized gym, like a Muay Thai or BJJ gym would be like my first attempt to foster a community. Yeah. And Ray, you mentioned that like, you're going to have to behave in such a way that people, you can tolerate other people, right. right? You can continue to have a relationship as you continue to be around them, right? Foster friendships and such. And that requires you to act like a decent, caring, normal human being. Right. But okay. So here's what uh, psychopaths do. 
So people think that like psychopaths rise up the corporate ladder and they get there and everything's great, but they can't because what really happens is that they screw everyone over. No one forgets it because who would? And they have to move. So psychopaths go take advantage of people until they get found out and then they run out of town and they go to the next place and then they screw a bunch of people until they're run out of They're town and they get the <laughs> right, so they didn't pop around all the time in in order to avoid their reputation well getting ahead of them right wow that's what the internet is making people do we're behaving like psychopaths because we're not sitting down in one place and treating people in a way that allows for that long-term relationship to continue and foster we because we don't have to do that because we can keep hopping around digital communities and our reputation doesn't follow us anywhere we can go to a place treat everyone like shit until it goes to shit hop to a new digital community and then a new one and then a new one and then a new one and you never have to leave your home because you're just on the internet so yeah you can you can go to a community where nobody stops you from acting like a crazy person they incentivize you to go become more and more extreme because they're agreeing with you in that positive reinforcement. And you have the opportunity to act like a psychopath. And this is super evident in the dating apps. Oh, yeah. <laughs> all you do, all you do is hop on Tinder, you bang somebody, and then you ghost them. Which is the opposite of how in the most intimate realm of human relationship, you are treating them like trash. Yeah. With no with no in desire, no, um, it's without any intent to stick around and maintain that relationship, despite the intimacy you just engaged. It's like the, there's no negative repercussions. Once you remove that physical element to all these interactions, right? Like, because if you make it your, like, if you make yourself abrasive or take advantage of people or situations enough times, to use a phrase my dad would say, you're going to get your, your, your block knocked off. You know, someone's going to take it out on you. Like, <laughs> you're, yeah. you're not going to be welcome in places if you continue to behave a certain way. And people can only take so much before the real threat of violence actually becomes a thing. And either, either you're going to defend yourself, which is stupid, because if you start alienating the entire community, that's not going to go well for you. Um, and two... You, if you're any sane, rational human being, you're going to reevaluate your behavior and be like, maybe I'm the problem, right? Like that parable, have you heard it, Joe, where it's like, say you're like driving to work and you keep getting cut off and it's like, wow, everyone's just an asshole. And it's like, well, maybe the common denominator in that solution or that equation is you and you're actually the asshole, not. <laughs> right. It, yes. You can the common denominator. Right. And if everything down around to you, you probably are. You're doing something wrong. But we've created a world in which you never have to confront that because the moment things start to get a little uncomfortable, you can leave. Wrap yourself in a safety blanket, eject yourself. Yeah, go to a new Reddit, a subreddit. Go to a new subreddit, fuck off. Get a new date on Tinder. Right. Whatever, you name it. So does Tinder give any like antidotes to this <laughs> just out of curiosity say that again does she give any like antidotes to this like what what should we be doing to like pivot? she she does i didn't actually go that far i was more interested when i was rereading this portion to to get my thoughts straight i was more interested in the technocracy thing the idea that 
Yeah. We've replaced all of our statesmen with scientists. And really, there's something like engineers that just come in to fix a problem and then yeah. piss off. Um, but she does have... Um, I only say that as to juxtapose because we're just kind of laying out a bunch of negatives that we're... You know, <laughs> she goes on about vigilance in the last chapter. I wonder, I don't know if I can pull up something in a timely manner. About, okay. I'm sure we can always revisit it at some point. Yeah, I don't know if I'll be able to pull up. I probably should have thought of that. Well, I'm learning as we go. It's all good. Um, I mean, try to end on a positive note every time we do this, but yeah, I mean, for me, it's like I would like, lean into like a stoic view of this in some sense, right? Like the or like almost a Petersonian view of it, right? Like you, you would pick something and aim to make the most positive impact, like right? If you do studies or research on people, like what do people like find value or meaning in their own life as like young people, and it's always providing an impact to some to something in the world right but it's it ends up being like an outsized impact which is not to say it's possible but it's the that young people don't have the skill set to make a large impact yet right and so it's to me the the aim is that you should choose to try to solve problems that are within your relative skill set not 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 too easy but maybe a little bit harder and you're not sure you can do it but you think you can see how to do it right and and i think that that's where we kind of miss the mark or or the other part of this is is learning how to do like tangible skills because i think a lot of the skills that are you can get a job in nowadays like you said with the technocracy kind of thing is it's a lot of jobs that are kind of busy work that they seem like technical things and they and they sound like you're doing really important stuff but at the end of the day, they're kind of just like hollow administrative gopher, right? Like you're not really doing something actually productive. And so my, and this is just, this is very, a very new thought for me, but it's, it's learning something that provides you a tangible skill that pr- produces something in the real world in some form. Because I think the, the closer that you are to something that you can touch with your hands, the the more invaluable you will be as things continue to digitize. Because I think, I think we're losing something by over-digitizing things. Yeah, we're losing a bit of the concrete practical stuff. Yeah, and it, it kind of scares I, me, honestly, yeah. right now. Like, as, an, as someone who went into hardware first for engineering, it's like people don't really, like, people look at it almost down at it. Like, it's like you're getting your hands dirty kind of stuff. And I'm like, that is how this all started. We're like, we need people to be able to roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty. <laughs> it's easier to be a charlatan. Yeah. In, in, in the abstract world that you, you can even fool yourself into believing that you're making a difference when you're not doing, you're just, it's intellectual masturbation. Yeah. So there's something about the real world that grounds you, you know, to be in something they can knock you upside the head when you yes. really fuck it up. That's okay. That was the word. That was what I was thinking. It's like a ground, like you need something that anchors you in the real world because as things digitize, what you can do is you can lose your footing and you can start becoming untethered and you're like floating off into space, right? Like you need something that's going to like 
bring you back to reality instead of like you get so stuck on an idea or so stuck on some um uh I ideal right not not even idea like something that's like yeah like a utopian ideal right um and just to use an example i remember when i was in school we had to do this uh project and it was all about programming a microcomputer to be able to to just do simple programs you know like turning off the lights in a sequence or just kind of doing simple programming things but it was all tied to like controlling hardware but then the senior design project was our teacher basically said okay guys we've done 14 weeks of classes of classes and now you got to just make a final project i don't care what it is be creative you can go as complex or as easy as you want you just have to make something that's you're controlling some sort of hardware as your final project you got two weeks to figure it out and do have fun and it was really fun because i was already interested in robotics at the time and we just bought a whole bunch of like basically rc car parts to be able to create a three-part robotic arm and it ended yeah. up being super lightweight but it was three joints so it had like a a shoulder, an elbow, and a wrist that, and then the wrist was just like a gripper that could open and close and then rotate 180 degrees. But here's the cool thing, right? Like it sounds simple and you can kind of like ideate, right? Like each joint is just a rotational thing. So you just have zero to 180 degrees or however you would program it. Programming aside, the cool thing about it was that you learn in real time by actually trying to implement this in real life because you could draw this on paper, but you never actually understand the complications that arise once you bring your idea into the real world. And yeah. we had to basically do adjustments on the fly that we would never have guessed. One, one of which being is that the arm itself was too heavy to, it couldn't lift itself back up, even though we used like lightweight doll rods and stuff that are lightweight to us, but just not taking into account how strong the motors we use were. So we had to basically come up with on the fly just to get it to work because we had only two weeks to get it done. We had to drill the screw in the back and we had leftover uh, springs that we just kind of stretched to the corners to basically give a counterweight. We did no math for this. Like it wasn't like we were going to do any sort of like counterbalancing to figure out the weight of it and blah, 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 like we could have done. But we were just trying to get a prototype working. And so this is what I used as like an example of like when the rubber meets the road it's like having the idea is just step one and then getting something to work in reality is a whole other thing entirely and so when i see people making criticisms online of like oh well why can't they just fix it it should be so easy that to me speaks to someone who's never actually tried to create something in the real world because when you actually try to do something it sounds easy when you start but it's when you actually start trying to implement those things that you realize how much work it actually is to make it real. Yeah. There's this idea in the military called commander's intent. And so what you do when you're going to have a mission is you sit down and you go over every detail. You plan every single little piece of that operation, everything, everything mm -hmm. you can imagine, where you're going to step, what the room looks like, what this, you practice it, you do everything. Like, here are the goals. Here are the sub goals. Here's the things we need to hit. Here's all that. But the mission is organized under, under the commander's intent. And it's sort of the overarching value of the mission. What is it that we need to accomplish here? What's the spirit of this mission? Why do we need to get after this thing? Right. And the reason for that is because the moment boots touch the ground and this thing begins, your plan is screwed. Yeah, it the plan never survives reality. It never survives reality. 
once the chaos begins, the whole damn thing gets blown apart. But you've memorized the plan so well, and you understand the intent so that when the ground shifts beneath you, you can still, you can adapt to it, keep your target in mind and continue to move around the obstacles that are coming in your way that you didn't see coming, hit what goals you can on the way and make your way to the overarching goal here, right? And it, it's taking into account the fact that reality is a motherfucker <laughs> and all the time. Yeah. And you have to be willing to adapt, right? Adapt and overcome. That's another brain right. course. <laughs> I mean, it reminds me of, I was, as soon as you started talking about that, I was thinking the no plan, sur no plan survives the first contact with the enemy is the, is the quote you hear from the military a ton. Right. Never. Yeah, and, and, and I totally it's agree. Same, but it's the same thing. When I need to change out my brakes on my car, I'm like, this will take 30 minutes. And then I go in there and the rotor is freaking like rusted onto the car and a sledgehammer isn't getting it off. You're like, Oh shit. Well, there goes the half an hour time, Mark. Let me right. go find a special tool for this thing. It's like, that's the way that it goes. Reality can be a dick. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, I think no honestly, what we really need to do is instead of companies creating these walled gardens, Apple, I'm looking at you, um, where we basically turn our, our products into gray boxes. I personally think that almost everybody should have the right to repair, um, which is, yeah. which means that you should make a product and allow third parties to be able to keep your product running for, for longer if they so choose, because not only does that one reduce, um, possible e-waste as we continue to create more and more products, it makes it less likely that people need to upgrade because they can keep existing products running. And two, it creates a thriving tinkerers ecosystem that allows people to create real tangible hands-on skills to understand how the technological society we've built continues to function and provides a gateway for people that are younger who don't have the specialized knowledge to be able to get into these industries. Because right now there's just so much, like it's so hard to get into these top places. Like you already have to be proven that you know what the hell you're doing to get into the best places in the world. Yeah. And how do you do that? If you've got, if you're 20 years old and you have no skills, like how do you prove that you've run like a production, like a successful production run pr product in this world. You don't. And then you become some online admin and you send emails 40 hours a week. Plus it's sort of <laughs> like, yeah, that you don't have, one, the idea that you don't have the right to repair your own shit is abysmal. Yes. Uh, I mean, Tesla was doing this for a minute there where you could only take your Tesla to, to a certified a Tesla. Tesla dealer. Yeah. To get it repaired, um, which is a kind of an, a form of monopoly in its own way, its own little ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But also it's like, what does ownership mean then? Right. If I can't repair this thing myself, what is ownership? Like stop, respect me as a human being, as a customer, understand that, that, <laughs> that I should have the right to own the thing that I own. I paid for this. We made an agreement. Don't back out after I've gotten a hold of it. Like this is silly. And it's like, so that's one part of it. But then the other part of it is like, if you've created, for example, a MacBook that nobody can repair, you can't even open the damn thing. And that you can't bring it to a place for them to repair and you can't play with it in the way that a PC you can, which is a big benefit of a PC. You're actually decreasing. You're kind of, how do you say? 
I don't, it's not raising the ceiling exactly. It's more like you could raise the floor if you <laughs> let people repair things because they're stuck on this thing where they're at. But when, the moment that you can go in and start to play with this thing and repair it myself, I've been giving it, it's given an incentive to learn computers, to learn hardware, to understand these facets of our very quickly developing society and become a master of my little world, my terrain, this new digital terrain, but you're denying me the chance to understand our world better in a time when it would be very good if people understood these technologies better. Oh yeah. I completely agree. I mean, I've built three computers from the ground up and by, and by actually doing that, two of our other friends have built computers themselves too. And if I ever get a real <laughs> job, <laughs> I mean, and it's, but here, that's the thing, right? Like that's how this community thing fosters, right? Like all of a sudden, once one person takes a step into the unknown, they're able to bestow this unknown knowledge, right? Like I can't go to my parents and be like, how do I build a computer? Mom and dad, they're not, they're going to look at me like I'm insane. <laughs> but that'll be, that can be, if we play our cards right as a society, what, like what you do with your son. Yeah. Like your son wants to get into gaming and you're like, okay, we're going to build a computer together. We're going to build a gaming computer together. Oh yeah. Right. So it's, the, it's more than just going and buying a console and somehow it you, just works. Yeah, you press the power works. button and it goes. And you take it for granted. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because now it's just a commodity that you purchase at a store and it has no real connection to your effort, to your labor, to your understanding. You're sort of alienated from the thing. Uh, instead. You get to work on it and build this thing and it becomes personal to you and you understand it better, but it's also a moment between like father and son, there's yep. an emotional connection. And then, then you have this cool thing, right? So it's more valuable to build the damn thing, even if you have to put in the effort yeah. than to go buy it. I think but if you're building a bunch of products and you're not allowed to build yourself or to repair <laughs> or to work on it all, you're denying people that. Yeah. I, I have another story that's related to this is when I got my first car, um, it was a 90 Toyota Corolla. I drove it off the lot for three grand. The thing had two broken struts in the rear. Uh, two of the door handles were broken and didn't work. Uh, the rear view mirror didn't work or was cracked or something. I forget exactly what it was. But basically, this car was as close to a fucking beater as it could. But it was $3,000 and it had like 50,000 miles. It was great. Perfect first car. But luckily I had an uncle who knows how to fix cars. But I had to uh, go to the junkyard to see if we could find another version of my car that was in relatively good shape to scavenge parts. So door handles, rear view mirrors, basically anything that was like superficial that was easily enough to take off the car and replace ourselves so we didn't have to go buy it. We did it because it's, you know, spent, I don't even know, probably less than $50 for all the parts we scavenged. Right. And then I was there the whole time with my uncle. We replaced all the brakes, replaced all of the struts that were broken. Basically, anything we could fix ourselves, we did. And that car lasted me probably four or five years before it finally cropped out. But again, I had way more appreciation for that $3,000 car than most people would do for the first car that their parents buy them. Because I knew how that car worked. Like, I got to figure out how the door mechanism worked because the latch mechanism inside the door wasn't working and so i figured out how to actually correct it without buying a new one because i right. like one of the tabs was bent or something in a weird way because someone yanked on the handle too hard 
And so I basically, I literally remember say, sitting outside and freezing my ass off trying to figure out how to make that door latch work. <laughs> yeah. Like just these little quirks of this vehicle that you just take, end up taking for granted that just end up paying off because you just end up appreciating. Like I appreciate my current car so much more because I don't have to deal with these headaches because it just works <laughs> and it's magical. <laughs> Gain an entire domain of knowledge in the process of that. Yeah. It's like, if you don't know anything about your car or you don't know anything about your computer, it's a black box. Mm -hmm. Like something just, if you never enter it, it doesn't make, if something goes wrong, you're like, whoa, I don't know what I did. Yep. And that's all you can do. But it's, and that, that makes you dependent on people who are going to take advantage of you. You go to the, you go to a kind of a shady panic yeah. and they're going to be like, oh yeah, you need a air filter and you need <laughs> that. Yep. It, it behooves everybody to be as knowledgeable as they can with the things they use almost every day because we want our people, we want as a nation, our people to be competent. Why would you not want confident people? It's like we were, we're so fixated on like economic growth in this weird way that we don't understand that it's, it's, it's economic growth predicated on falsehood <laughs> that, that it's taking advantage of ignorant people, but ignorant people don't allow for the society on which those companies exist to continue. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an inherently temporary thing yeah bad I mean, idea. the funny thing is like i would say 90 percent of what i consume on the internet is people doing tech reviews talking about the newest in the car world the newest in the computer world the newest in ai machine learning models and things like that because even though i don't interact with those things on a regular basis at some point those things will become everyday commodities right like how many people didn't think the internet and computers were going to be a thing yeah and now what what happened our entire world is dictated by the computers and devices we use every day <laughs> most of us can't even put them down <laughs> and so it's like it's it's a problem because you need we need a value system of some kind or at least a value that we as a society can agree on so that our businesses aren't creating black boxes that, that take advantage of their customers in a way that's clearly unsustainable in the long run. And so that we're not talking past each other incessantly, so that we're not moving in different directions and causing more <laughs> problems than we would otherwise, and so on and so forth, right? Yeah. And that's, we got to reconstitute. And I think that we touched on what a good option is on the last podcast. We talked about the nature of love. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I know that in that, in that podcast, we talk a lot about the show Cyberpunk, which I would recommend you go watch, uh, whoever happens to be watching this. Um, but if you're looking for a more in-depth solution to the values problem, I think we did a pretty good job talking about it there. Yeah, I think so too. I think honestly, we should we should pencil this down somewhere, or I don't know if John Verveke has a book or something we can um, read or watch from him. But I think he might be the next stops we go to in this podcast, talking about yeah, meaning. I'd be down to talk about meaning, but John Verveke is a very complicated thinker. 
<laughs> so I don't know if I could sum him up in anywhere near as pretty a way as he does. <laughs> as he does, he has the Meeting Crisis podcast. Oh, podcast. I, didn't, I didn't know he had a podcast. I know it's he has a, a YouTube channel. Am, yeah, that's right. Yeah, a YouTube series about Meeting Crisis. But but yeah, or just anything on the Meeting Crisis or this meeting in general or creating meeting would be, I think, something. A good one. Yeah, something we could do uh, to push people. And maybe we should do something on Stoic since we've mentioned that one. Um, be down. Pretty often, too. Maybe just on Marcus Aurelius's meditations because that's not too long. All right. Let's tease that for the future. Hopefully, this was an interesting live stream and podcast for people. Yeah. I feel like it just ends up being more and more ideas for us to continually explore <laughs> and how to, solve, yeah. how to solve the problems we've messed ourselves up with. So I guess anyone who's watching or gotten this far, if you've got any ideas that were sparked as we were talking here or stories to share about, you know, community and how to foster, I, maybe this is too flowery, but like fostering agency, because I think that's what really this comes down to is like, like, helping young people feel masters of their universe, right? Like, or like not even be masters of the universe, but like feel like they can tease out the the next brick in the road. Because sometimes yeah. it, like, it just feels like there's just a wall of just chaos and unknown. And there's so many different places you can go, right? Like with the beginning intro quote, there's so many things, you, like so many ways you can step that there's nobody around you that gives you that like thing you might be interested in that seems enticing enough to give yourself the reason to go step in that direction. And I think if we had people who were just sharing stories about the people that gave them that feeling that they could take on the unknown might be a cool thing to talk about. Yeah. Throw it in the comments below. Get, trying, to get better, trying to get better to, uh, to, to ask questions of the audience so that we could try and get people to engage. <laughs> yeah. Or even to bring up something we that they think would be interesting to talk about. Yeah. You I know, mean, for streams. I mean, there's so many books that we haven't got approached by or have been uh, heard through other means. So the more the merrier, as always. Yeah. And we threw up a, I threw up a new article on the website. Oh, yes. FeedingCuriosity.com about another archetypes article on uh, the bowl the meaning symbolically of the bull, which is a very old one. Um, there's also the uh, Ouroboros article that we put up a while ago, and those are both available if you'd like. Yep. So if you're interested in how Joe selects topics or ideas within the philosophical realm, that's definitely for you. Alrighty. So with that, we'll see everybody next week.